Welcome to another riveting episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 mania. Heard every Wednesday right here on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond. And that's at 11 a.m. Howdy do, Fran. Hey. Welcome. We had uh, a really interesting and factual and informative episode that you slid into the end of. (laughs) But Fran's always the spoiler, so listen all the way to the end of this episode so you get her massive (laughs) world-destroying question. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. That's right. We'll we'll go ahead and get into this episode and we'll hit you back up at the end. All right. With us today, we have some guests from two DSA groups in town. DSA is Democratic Socialists of America. We have three guests with us today, and I'd like to let them go ahead and introduce themselves and tell us how they got involved. All right. Well, I'm Ayame, pronoun she, her. I'm with the Richmond DSA chapter. I am one of the chapter co-chairs, and... I am just happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah, my name is uh, Austin G. Uh, My pronouns that I use are he, him. I was one of the founders, along with Ayame, of the uh, what would become the full Richmond DSA chapter. I've been involved with a couple different chapters throughout Virginia with DSA. And uh, as of last August, just a month ago, was elected to DSA's National Political Committee. So I am now on the uh, national board of uh, DSA or whatever you want to call it. Congratulations. And I'm Catherine Rowe. I am... I'm one of the co-chairs for the Young Democratic Socialists of America at VCU. So it's the college chapter um, of the national organization. I'm pretty new to YDSA, but I'm also excited to be here. (laughs) Can one of y'all or all of y'all tell me exactly what democratic socialism is? I think democratic socialism means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I can definitely speak about what democratic socialism, what it means to me, uh, what it means to most people within the Democratic Socialists of America, as well as the Richmond chapter in the VCU YDSA. I'd say one of the things that makes it somewhat difficult to talk about democratic socialism is the fact that socialism itself has become so stigmatized in our culture here in the United States. Uh, We live in, you know, post-Cold War America. So because of that, telling anybody you're a socialist can get you some uh, strange reactions sometimes, which is why I think that one of the DSA's goals is to kind of remove that stigma towards socialism. And I'd say that the best way to do that is just by breaking down exactly what socialism is. And, and, and like I said, what it what it really means to me is, you know, a democratic society for all, you know, where no nobody has an, an unnecessary accumulation of resources, so to speak, that we see in our current society, in our capitalist society. Under, you know, democratic socialism, you know, it's a much more uh, equitable society for all, where everybody has a chance to succeed, where we truly have the real, I like to say, a quality of opportunity that we really don't have in our current, current society. You know, you just look at somebody like Donald Trump, born into infinite riches, now the president of the United States. And you can't tell me that he's not president because of his riches, because we don't have an equality of opportunity. And if you are born rich, you do have more chances uh, to advance a life than other people. And for me, democratic socialism, our goal is to change that, to change our society into a truly fair and equal one for all people. That's my definition of democratic socialism. Yeah, I think something that we kind of say in my group at VCU is, you know, if you just stick somebody in a room to kind of understand human nature and you make them watch people play Monopoly, you're going to assume that people are inherently self-interested and cold and calculating and that, you know, wealth is prioritized above all and that wealth will get you farther than any other resource. And I think that that is a flawed observation about humans. I think that we are inherently communal creatures. I think we're social creatures. I think that we are altruistic and generous. And I think that at our core, we want prosperity for everyone. That just idea has started to become lost on us because we've been in, we've grown up in a society that's taught us that that's not the path that's going to get you to success that you're going to get screwed over if that's your mentality because it's not shared and i think that democratic socialism is trying to seek a revival of those ideals in american society so that we can lose some of that selfishness that we don't need and kind of reestablish a government and a society that facilitates the prosperity for everyone and not just the people that happen to have the greater amount of resources at their disposal 
soul. And you can see, I mean, I feel like people now more than ever are becoming more and more aware of the inequalities. I mean, especially in Richmond, I mean, between like evictions and just just the capitalist system in general with coverage and just how frustrating that can be day to day for people and just something's got to change and it needs to drastically change for the betterment of everyone and not just like that top percent like the ceos and everything something's got to give and we want to be there to help make that push we have a lot of enlightened listeners but some folks have no clue what it is that you guys espouse and what the difference is between democratic socialism and the democratic party can you explain that to us i mean even at just a base level what are the main differences where to start (laughs) (laughs) maybe that'll take up the rest of the hour (laughs) good (laughs) just kind of like brief overview as far as what's the main differences between the democratic party and and the dsa first of all the dsa actually has principles so i would say that's probably one of the biggest differences as opposed to the democratic party which has no principles i'd say that's not really a controversial statement you find all types of different uh (laughs) i don't know blue dogs or whatever you want to call it especially that's just politics right (laughs) yeah exactly especially in a state like Virginia, where I think Virginia and a lot of states throughout the South or just in rural parts of the country, they're starved for genuine left-wing change. And one of the reasons that that is the case is because of the Democratic Party. Because if there's one thing that the Democratic Party on a consistent basis, at least in the South and in rural parts of the country does not do, that is run on left-wing change. It's run to the right. Let's run on Republican light. Let's be, you know, milk toast, whatever. And that's not what the DSA is about. The DSA is about a genuine left wing platform for change that change such as the what was alluded to by both Ayame and Catherine earlier. And you just don't get that with the Democratic Party, especially in places like Virginia, especially like places in rural parts of the country where once again, Democrats are more interested in reaching across the aisle or whatever, or just once again, having no principles. And in some cases, like Mark Warner, standing on the fact that you have no principles. So yeah, it's about having an actual serious left wing message that actually reaches to the average person and most importantly improves the life of the average working individual who is getting crushed right now by american capitalism which just gets piled on more and more by you know you know members of the far far right or the alt right and obviously you know president you know donald trump so it's one of our goals to change that and to provide for that actual left wing message that is just it's once again the south and a place like virginia is so starved for that message the democrat party is not cool and dsa is cool yeah <laughs> I don't know if y'all would like to add to that. Yeah, I think that you really nailed it with the that the DSA has a message, I think, that you can point to more so than the Democratic Party, because in a lot of senses, I think that the Democratic Party is more political, whereas the Democratic Socialists are more, almost more grassroots, I want to say. Like, I would say the Democratic Party is organized from top down in a lot of instances where you have these major figures like Mark Warner and we can name a hundred others that are just kind of the figureheads of the movement that say that they have certain issues that they value and that we should vote for them because those are the things that they support. I think that democratic socialism and the organization of democratic socialism kind of does the reverse. They say, we recognize all of you, not just those of you that come out to the polls. And we want to make sure that your quality of life is being improved in a tangible way. And the way that we do that is by getting a leg into politics. I think that it's more based towards the interests of the whole as opposed to the interests of the people that want to be up on the national stage. I That's kind of why I like it, is I think that it feels more authentic almost because no one is going to be a democratic socialist unless they genuinely care about the issues that democratic socialism permits. And I think that if you spend time with the organization, that like genuine passion is felt, I would say, more so than a lot of times you see in the Democratic Party. That's why I love with Nick Da Silva running for City Council 5th District, he literally door to door is going through and asking people what are the things that are bothering them that's causing them problems in the city. So, And then he is actually trying to connect them to people who can help them and making notes of, okay, these are things that if I get this position, like what I need to take care of because he's actually listening
listening to people instead of just going for what the corporations want. And that's what city council is doing now. And that's like with the Navy Hill project and everything that Tom Farrell wants and Dominion. And Nick De Silva is definitely different from that. And that's why our chapter has endorsed him. And that's why, you know, we're helping to make sure that he we're trying our hardest to make sure that he gets that. Exactly. Nick's in and of himself is, you know, an incredible candidate. Nick came out of the VCU YDSA, you know, so it, it ties in both or all the points that we're making here and that DSA is an emerging, so to speak, an emerging grassroots movement. And that's personified in local candidates such as Nick De Silva, who are the natural evolution of that grassroots movement, which was a natural reaction to things such as the election of Donald Trump, which, you know, a lot of people were obviously upset about and wanted to uh, be able to get involved in local activism. And DSA has done its best to try and be able to bring all those people together to get that kind of message to uh, to where, you know, we can actually fight for things that we actually believe in. And Nick De Silva is definitely one of the one of the the more amazing things to see kind of develop from uh, what we've been doing here in, in DSA in Richmond. Always happy to jump on the Nick De Silva train. He, like you said, was the former co-chair of the Young Democratic Socialists at BCU. I actually took office, if you will, at, right when he graduated. Even though I am fairly new to YDSA, I think I actually joined in like March of this year. So, you know, kind of a baby socialist. He has just genuinely been my mentor in terms of what an authentic leader looks like. It, he did not do what he did for the resume or for any clout. He just did it. You could feel that going above and beyond every single time with everything that he did. And I had never seen that before. You know, most people kind of just kind of stop once the goal has been reached or once you put forth good enough effort and can kind of justify, you know, your effort. Nick did not stop. He never did. And that kind of inspired me to take his position once he left because, you know, he had created so much inertia in the org that I just didn't want to see come to a stop. Completely agree. I think that he is kind of what the poster child looks like for like community local socialism. I think he's doing great work. When did your chapter organize here in Richmond, yours too, in YDSA at VCU? And what's the reception been like? I know you guys go out, you organize, you go out and knock doors. What are you guys hearing out in the community? I wish I could say how long YDSA at VCU has been on campus, but I can't know for certain. I am currently a junior, and when we, when I was a freshman, we were pretty established. So I would think probably it, got, it had gotten off the ground within a few years prior to that, but certainly nothing like we we are not like ingrained in the VCU like we are pretty new past five years I would say the reception again can't say this enough I'm very new to YDSA VCU but I have tried to kind of get a feel for how our organization has been on, on campus so I can kind of keep that in mind as we continue to guide it and I think we have changed dramatically since we were first on campus. I think when we were first on campus, it was more just kind of a gang of, you know, college socialists who wanted to sit down, talk theory, and get some people to the polls. And I think since then, we have grown from these little hippie kids who just wanted, you know, do their thing to a pretty pretty uh, intensive mutual aid organization in the community. I think we've built up a reputation for doing certain things, like we do our free break light clinic every month. So I think I think I'm happy to say I think that we've transitioned from kind of just a insular student org to becoming a pretty diverse, having diverse relationships with the community. And I think that that has been appreciated by the community, or at least I hope it has. Um, and I think that the reception of the org on campus has kind of increased in a positive way in light of all the work that we've done. Yeah, Austin and I were both some of the original original members for Richmond DSA. Uh, was it three? Over three years now? Which blows my mind every time I think about it because we've definitely seen it all I feel like <laughs> absolutely it's been quite a three years the uh, the Richmond chapter as Ayame just mentioned, we officially formed in early 2017. I want to say like April, something like that, of which Ayame, myself, and a few others were just a couple of nerds sitting at a table eating donuts. <laughs> um, but it's it's been amazing to kind of see that the the progress, you know, we've all made. And even the uh, VCU YDSA, I remember that being an effort that a few different folks attempted to, uh, to try and turn into a sustainable organization, which didn't really happen until Nick himself began to try and become more active in the chapter and try and steer things in the in the right direction and i believe you are correct i think maybe 20 
either late 2017 or early 2018 was when Nick was able to bring the VCUIDSA together into becoming like an actual thing on campus, which once again has been, you know, really, really amazing to see. When we, uh, like I said, when we started, we were what, maybe 10, 15 people mm -hmm. with some donuts. Now we're coming up to about like 300, you know, members. Now, granted, some of those are what we call in DSA, you know, paper members, members. Um, air quotes, yeah, <laughs> which, you know, is uh, normal for any sort of nonprofit organization. But also just to even touch upon, you know, what Catherine mentioned as far as like mutual aid work and, you know, brake lights, which have been a really big focus of VCU. YDSA, you know, I, I would say, in my opinion, coming from somebody who's on the national committee or whatever of DSA, that Richmond DSA, VCU, YDSA have been, have, have at least tried to be leaders in this regard as well for the entire organization, trying to kind of give that kind of uh, mutual aid, you know, model that others can, uh, can see actually work. Works, um, but not just, you know, that mutual aid model, but also being able to pair it up with the sort of electoral work that Nick De Silva is doing right now, because I think it's important to uh, show other organizations that it is possible to engage in, you know, multiple, multiple forms of struggle, as they say, and be effective and still be effective. So, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, cool. The community obviously means a lot to the DSA. What sort of things do you do when you talk about mutual aid? What do you do when you go out into the community to help folks? I think there's a difference between, to be completely honest, what the national chapter of at least the Young Democratic Socialists of America has in mind for the what our community or what our org does on campus and what we prioritize. It's just like, it's hard to sit outside school and table for Medicare for all when there are people, literally people walking past you that are trying to look for a place to sleep that night where they won't be arrested. It, it breaks your heart. And so I think when you see all of that, it's you know, we'll, we'll put forth the effort for these national platforms a lot, but I think that our efforts are mainly towards helping the people directly in our community in light of socialist values, which returns to my, like, just the sense of generosity and altruism that I think is inherent in everyone and that democratic socialism tries to promote. So, you know, we do lots of, like, partnerships with various organizations, um, and then we also have started projects of our own. We've mentioned the free brake light clinic, free garage, whatever you want to call it, which is a, like, exactly like it says. It's a free uh, workshop where anybody can come and get their brake lights changed and other just small maintenance. Uh, can you expand upon why yeah. you do the brake lights? Yes, absolutely. The reason that we do this kind of thing is not just so people can get their cars fixed. It's because that the brake lights being out and these small damages and things and violations, I guess, and people's conditions of their cars are a major reason why people will get pulled over in Richmond cities. And of course, we are trying to minimize the number of police interactions that our citizens, especially our low-income citizens, especially our citizens of color, have to do. And so if we can just help them with at no cost to them make these changes without needing to confront a police officer in an unsafe situation, we are eager to do that for them. So we just kind of take over the parking lot outside Rag and Bones, um, have some posters, have lots of people doing the labor. If you have a bigger repair, I think we do require that you provide the part or pay for the part and we'll provide it for you. But smaller ones like brake lights, we have just a big box of them and we'll just change it out for free. So hopefully, you know, you can drive on the streets and feel a little bit safer and not be quite quite as nervous that you're going to get pulled over for something minor and have it turn into a very dangerous encounter. So that's kind of our objective with that. Well, despite people thinking that, oh, that's such a minor thing, how come you can't just get that fixed? Well, you don't understand what it's like for people, one, who aren't handy, and two, who are busy or poor. Exactly. It, sometimes it takes some ingenuity to get into certain cars' lights. You know, you need that help, and you might not have the 15 to 30 minutes it takes to do that right. when you're on your way to your fourth job. And yeah, exactly. You know? And like, you know, I, I don't care why you didn't change your brake light. Right. Like, I don't care at all. It's free. It's right near, hopefully, a parking lot where you drive by every day. It's pretty centrally located. No questions asked. We'll just fix it. Like, if, it, if it's because you can't afford it, you don't know how, you're scared, it doesn't matter. Just stop by. We will switch it out. It's very quick. If you stick around and watch, we'll probably just teach you how to do it, and then you can do it yourself, and then send you on your way, and hopefully you'll feel a little bit safer driving around. Anybody else do any other sort of community service, community involvement? No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I'd say, to follow up on some of the points 
points that were made earlier, you know, Richmond DSA is still young. VCU YDSA is still young. And if I recall correctly, some of the early conversations, some of the conversation, one of the conversations we had a lot early on was not stepping on the toes of other groups who are already engaging in work. So more often than not, what you'll see Richmond DSA be, you know, more effective in is uh, partnering up with other local organizations that specialize in, I don't know, uh, that are more issues-based organizations, I should say. And one of the reasons for this is because DSA or socialism or democratic socialism, uh, for me, for us, I should say, is an all-encompassing message. You know, it's important for us to be there at these kind of more uh, single issue-based campaigns uh, to provide that, uh, that, <laughs> that socialist message, if you will. And because it's important to, to, to support the local community rather than being that group that comes in is the new flavor of the month says okay cool we're now the experts doing all the stuff no that's not how you properly organize in a community it's about partnering up with those little groups that are already doing the work and you know doing what we can to help them you know i'd love to give a shout out uh to the uh, virginia defenders which is a group that we collaborate with a lot on the local level they're really good i'm sure vcu you know as yeah as you mentioned earlier does a lot of collaboration and stuff like that as well so we'll do you know dsa will do mutual aid programs most famously the break light one, which I should also shout out the New Orleans DSA who uh, helped pioneer that program. But a lot of it also is just partnering up with those local organizations already engaging in that sort of work because we don't want to step on other people's toes. And, you know, having a, un a united front <laughs> is so important, especially in the times that we live in. We can't be we can't be divided. I think that's actually really key because you see, especially I don't know if it's like this in other cities, but especially in Richmond, we have a lot of nonprofits, a lot of organizations and they're doing wonderful things, but they're all doing the same thing. Not all of them, but, you know, there's a lot of them that do the same thing. They overlap. And so it's nice to hear that there are folks that are willing to just back up, lift up those voices that are doing good, you know, come together and work together as a team. It's nice that you guys actually pinpointed that and did that instead of just being like, well, we're going to set up shop, you know? Right. Yeah. That, that was, yeah. Like I said, that was one of the, one of the conversations we had early on. Do we set up like the, you know, climate justice working group and okay, cool. They're going to take point on whatever. Or do we have that, you know, eco-socialist working group, you know, try and, you know, work with other different groups in the area or even on a statewide basis to, to kind of see how we can be more effective helping them out in that aspect rather than, you know, doing basically restarting what they've already done. So. Yeah. Like, I mean, especially with the, the e our eco-socialism working group like that's honest on just a side note one of our priorities for a chapter that we kind of focused that we voted as a chapter to focus on this year that working group collaborates with a lot of the different groups in the area and we even our general meeting leading up to the climate strike march that happened last week we had another person from the community come and talk to our members about the effect that the pipelines have in on the the rivers and the lakes and like the southwestern Virginia area and everything and it was really it just was even more powerful to hear just stories from you know other community members on the impact that that's made and how important it is for everyone to be there and to take part in in this fight in whatever way that we can and just the same with Richmond Public Schools when they had their big strike at the beginning of this year I believe was when that was all different groups came and supported just like between DSA and IWW and like all of these other like local groups that just pulled in to uplift the teachers and what they were fighting for because everybody knew that this was important and our kids are our future and we need to give them everything that you know that they need to succeed though. So. Exactly and you know I even think about all the you know the bullshit that's going on with you know the RHA right now like what's smarter us all being divided and having no actual strategy to fight this we're actually coming together and showing up to those meetings and saying hey you guys or you know something more <laughs> professional than that or whatever but some sort of <laughs> united thing that we can actually you know work work together on because what do we ultimately have as members of the work class we will always have strength in numbers and if we're not using that strength in numbers well then what's the point right well before we get into issues because we're going to talk about issues for the for the next half of the show election season's ramping up and then of course we have 2020 coming up so you're going to be out there you're going to be knocking doors you're going to be tabling you're going to be doing all of these things and there are a lot of people out out there, old Richmond Guard, who have no clue what you are, or they think that, you know, socialism is something for hippies, <laughs> you know, or whatever, or you have people who are viscerally angry about it. 
for whatever their reason is. They're riled up by, you know, the guy in the White House or Fox News misinformation. So you're going to come across a lot of people that either don't like you, don't know you, don't understand. How are you going to handle that? I think about this a lot because I completely agree. You know, I polarization is natural, I think, in any society with like two sides of the political spectrum being represented. And, you know, I came from, I grew up in the South, so naturally my parents are Republicans. And for a long time, like up through high school, when you just don't know any better, it's easy to go with what your parents say. And so I think because as I got into like junior, senior year of high school through college, I formed this opinion and this political stance through a lot of just of reasoning on my own. You know, I didn't just do it because I felt like it was what everyone else was agreeing with. I did it because I I saw the platform and I saw what socialism does. And I was like, this is this is what I agree with. And this is what I think is necessary. And the more you research, the more I feel like that was that I'm I'm justified in where I stand. And so to address the people that are kind of just like you said, like viscerally angry at socialism, I just I really don't think it comes from a place of just inherently being a bad person who doesn't care about the issues that don't, you know, the issues that we focus on. I really think it's a case of just severe misinformation. There's so much that people just assume about socialism and what how we function in the community that I think is just it's been hyped up and it's been almost catastrophic by the other side, you know, everyone's like, oh, Medicare for all, you know, if we have everybody having health care, like, where's all this money? And there's just, I think that if you really look at the matter, the vast majority of the people that are being resistant to socialism are people that would largely benefit from a socialist society being in place. You know, you see this anger from people who are not making any money from the fossil fuel industry, who are not making any money from the pharmaceutical industry, who are not making any money from the insurance companies. They're just regular people. People. They're regular working class individuals that just have been in, it's been ingrained in them that putting your resources towards other people is a detriment towards yourself. And so I would just kind of reason with them and say, when we say that we're going to increase taxes to pay for Medicare for all, we're not going to increase the taxes of somebody who's a mechanic down the street. You know, that is, of course, you're going to think that because that's exactly how they can keep, you know, conservatives from this working class thinking that their interests are being protected. But I think just through conversation and through explaining in just very sensible terms that we are should be a community based on mutual interests. And I think that a lot of the people in the working class that are leaning towards conservatism have mutual interests with the Socialist Party that they don't understand because they've been told that the Socialist Party is something that it's not. So yeah, I would really just I would really just go at it with informing them as reasonably as possible that, you know, we are, regardless of whether you support us or not, like we're actually working for your interests. And if you choose to agree with that, that we will welcome your support. And if not, it's unfortunate, but you will still reap the benefit if we succeed. So, and that's fine with fine by me, you know, (laughs) I'm happy to help everyone, even if they don't agree with me. Exactly. Yeah. It all goes back to that stigma, that, that post cold war stigma or, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, and uh, addressing the question, you know, sure. We'll occasionally get those people that'll, and I'm sure this happens on campus all the time with, you know, TPUSA types or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever. Anyway, um, you know, every once in a while you'll get somebody come up and say, well, how do you explain all the people that died in Soviet Russia? Something ridiculous like that, which, you know, and that's the thing. Socialism will always get uh, put up toward all these kind of litmus tests that you never see capitalism put up toward. You know, I, I'm never allowed to say, well, hey, mother are you going to explain to me all the deaths that happened in Iraq because of a capitalist thirst for oil? <laughs> you know, but nobody ever frames the question in that regard because right. it's all about bashing socialism and putting it up against these litmus tests that's, that capitalism has never put up against because for some strange reason, whatever the Chinese or Russian governments have done is apparently intrinsic to socialism. But any bad things that the United States government has ever done is not intrinsic to capitalism. But anyway, I'll stop ranting about that. Like Catherine mentions, it's, you know, it's all about trying to overcome that stigma. And I think, I think there's an opportunity at least in our times or whatever you want to call it, for once again, that genuine kind of populist left-wing message. You just look at Bernie Sanders' primary uh, when he was running. 
uh, which counties were he most successful in Virginia? Was it the urban ones? It was the rural ones. And the reason he was most successful in those rural counties was because of that genuine populist left-wing message. You know, I even had a, a roommate who was a diehard Trump supporter. We're not roommates anymore, but he was a diehard Trump supporter. I got him to vote for Bernie during the primary because of that genuine pop populist left-wing message. If you're going to run a candidate who's just going to run on the status quo and say, oh, well, you know, the way everything's going right now, no, that's awesome. Let's just keep it going that way. Well, obviously the average mechanic, you know, who's just struggling to feed his family is going to say, cool, I'm going to vote for the other guy who's saying, let's burn the <laughs> house down. If you're going to fight populism, with elitism or you know urbanism or whatever the hell you want to call it you're not going to be able to to reach the average american who doesn't have time to talk of to, to spend to waste their time you know talking about the things that that we talk about you know once again we do get those kind of people that are you know super anti you know socialist or whatever but i think like you said Catherine, you know we're we're, we're here to fight for them all and i do believe that we can reach them all. I, th I believe that is possible. I, I've seen even that the before. boomers. <laughs> okay, maybe not the boomers. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, there's. I feel like with most people, there's at least one issue that you know we might be able to kind of tie together, like socialism, in a positive way for them. Like you know, my parents are also conservative background, but my mom also was a nurse, and so she definitely saw firsthand how messed up our system is there with like with just healthcare and how expensive everything is and the drug companies and just how just the corporations are there and just how she spent she had to spend more time just hitting her patient quota than giving them the care that she actually wanted to give them being able to bridge with her like okay well you know this is what you know we want to push for medicare for all because we want to give people more and better care and just more consistent care across the board like that's something that she ends up being more you know that's that's her door of her door away from conservatism and and, and inching away into socialism and the same thing with like mutual aid like she's definitely like a very you know especially as being a nurse like a very kind and giving person who wants the best for people when she can and hearing like some of the mutual aid projects that happen in the area with like the break light clinic or even nationally like hurricane relief and just seeing other you know different groups across different cities all pulling together resources to help hurricane relief efforts just knowing that you know those things are happening that's another like bit more of the door opens for her and into seeing like what socialism really is absolutely and just to to briefly to to follow up on that you know a lot of people are going to be you know I guess, quote unquote, single issue voters or whatever. And what's, you know, a more important single issue than can I feed my family? Right. You know, do I not have to worry about going broke because I get cancer? You know, some, you know, things like that, which resonate to the average individual. And, and one more thing that I'd just like to, to add this discussion, because I, you know, it's I think it's important and it's something I harp on a lot is that socialism is as American as apple pie. The socialist tradition goes back to, to the 19th century in the United States, just like in other countries. Who do you think got us, you know, eight hour work days? Who do you think got us, you know, 40 hour work weeks? That was the work of socialists. You know, people forget characters like Eugene Debs, the historical leader of the socialist party of the early 20th century. He didn't just read some Karl Marx one day and say, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to be a socialist. No, he was a part of the great railroad strike during the late 1800s, which where he solved, you know, the, the, the reaction by the, the capitalist overlords to, you know, <laughs> what he and the other railroad strikers were, were doing as he was in jail. Then he discovered Karl Marx. And then he was like, oh, okay, cool. F everybody. Those probably weren't his words, but I'm sure that's what he was thinking. <laughs> but, but the point is that, you know, people try to act like socialism is, oh, it's a European idea or it's, you know, whatever you want to call it. But socialism is Americana. Anybody who actually knows United States history knows that socialism has been along for way longer than they have, you know, or, or socialist politics, whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, just throwing that out there. All right. Do you want to do the mid-tro for us? Yes. <laughs> Let me make sure it's right. I, I have an outtakes of Fran reading it and it's, missing at least one thing every It's, it's great. It's so <laughs> up. <laughs> I promise. And you're smack dab in the middle of another episode of RVA Durst Municipal Mania heard here on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio for your ass. Got it right that time. <laughs>
Speaking of socialist politics, it's issues time. <laughs> We're in the capital of the Confederacy. How does that affect the issues that you stump for that are close to your heart? God, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> but it, it, I think that the the unfortunate part about that is that, you know, Richmond at our court, we're a history buff town. The tourists come for the history, regardless of what that history is. And I think the fact that the Confederacy has such a strong rhetoric here means it's almost like more difficult to convince like long life conservatives to change their perspective because they assign conservatism to their identity to such a strong extent because they associate it with their Confederate roots. Yep. So I think that that narrative makes them, you know, really just dig their heels in because to have to be told that, you know, maybe these things aren't actually in your interest and maybe you should try to kind of look at the bigger picture and think about what it is that you hope to see change in your life and what system of government is going to achieve that. It's hard for them to just kind of bite the bullet and sometimes admit that maybe they need to look at it from a different way because they see that as sacrificing something that they have grown up believing is part of their of who they are. And so, you know, I don't think it's an impossible burden to overcome. I just think that it requires some restructuring of that narrative. You know, there's nothing wrong with having ancestors raised in the South. There is something wrong with your ancestors owning slaves. And I think that there's an important distinction where you can be proud of your heritage, but also condemn the parts of that heritage that were unethical and still be open to change. There's nothing wrong with being a Southern socialist. There's nothing inherently contradictory in that. It's just the mentality. And it's just unfortunate because I think that that mentality is a little bit stronger here, given that we're the capital, former capital of the Confederacy. And and we have racism and classism steeped into every system, you know, of government that we have here, every, every system of everything. I mean, really, if you think about it. And so most of our issues stem from long-term systemic racism. What, what are the main issues that you feel like you yourselves can work towards, you know, changing, making better, coming up with solutions? I have, I'm, I'm going to have a, put a little plug in here because this is so connected. Um, the systemic racism, the, it's one of those things, the more you look into it, the more outraged you tend to be because it's just so, such a vast just characteristic of our society, especially Southern society that, you know, people of color have been suppressed from the time that we landed in Jamestown and it has not really stopped. It's, it's taken on different faces, but it has not stopped and it really hasn't diminished if you look at the numbers and you look at the state of the state of people of color in the Richmond community and throughout the South. One of the ways that I think systemic racism is most prominently realized is mass incarceration, which is, of course, largely targeted towards people of color for various reasons. And the trying to summarize this as best I can, but it's a whole lot. Um, But basically, all of this is to say is that I think you see a lot of racial injustice in the prison system, especially in Virginia. And the problem is that public institutions are required to purchase many goods and services, whatever they can utilize, really, from Virginia Correctional Enterprises, which basically means that as any public institution, Virginia Commonwealth University included, has to purchase goods from that are manufactured by incarcerated workers, and incarcerated workers are not considered employees. They're paid between 15 cents and 40 cents an hour. Their conditions are not regulated. They have no right to unionize. And that kind of sounds a little bit like slavery, just a with, in a different face. Um, so, you know, one thing that YDSA is doing, well, BCYDSA is standing with all of the YDSA chapters in the state to try to get this um, mandate remanded and either to get these employees classified as employees because their role in providing for public institutions is massive and they deserve the rights that, you know, the value that assigned that their work contributes should be realized. Um, and it's just not right now. So that's definitely something that we're doing to try to address this major issue of workers' rights that plays largely into the larger framework of systemic racism because so many of these workers are being placed into the system because they're a person of color that's been raised in a society that's pretty much designed to turn them into free labor. Um, So that's something that YDSA is trying to do. It's big, it's ambitious, but I think, um, again, the more you look into it, the more it 
unjust it is and the more you just want to stop at nothing until you can get it changed. So that's like our primary take on racism in the South is just trying to get the rights of incarcerated workers a little bit elevated um, to where they deserve to be. Yeah. And, you know, I would just like to add or to, to show a lot of love and respect to VCU YDSA as well as the other YDSAs in the state for leading on this issue. You know, going to the uh, the National Convention in Atlanta, you know, I had other YDSAs from other states or whatever come up to me and ask me about the prison labor campaign that's been going on in Virginia because it is so important. And and like you mentioned, it is it is slave labor. It's, you know, 21st century, you know, Jim Crow or, or whatever we want to call it. Um, and, you know, I, I was born in Richmond, born in Richmond in the early 90s uh, to a Puerto Rican family. So there was never a time where I didn't drive on like Jeff Davis Highway or whatever and not be like, God damn, you this state. But um, <laughs> so so it's being a, a socialist chapter or whatever based in the former capital of the Confederacy, definitely um, it means that we organize in more challenging territory than a lot of the larger more successful DSA chapters might. And uh, that gives us different challenges and different, you know, tactics that we need to take, such as the prison labor campaign, uh, to combat the uh, the historical and systemic racism that exists in, in places like Richmond. Um, we've partnered up with various groups in the past to do, you know, tear them down rallies as far as the monuments. Um, I'd say everybody in, in DSA is in agreement to tear the, mm-hmm. yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that goes without saying. Um, so that's obviously really big for Richmond. Former capital of Confederacy, people until the end of of time are going to say, oh, well, well, the history people, we got to leave the Lee statue up. Look at all the tourism. No, f- the tourism. How about that? How about we actually honor good things in the South? I always say you don't go up to New York City and see a bunch of statues of Wall Street people. Why would you, why would a place honor its most reprehensible figures? That's just, that's ridiculous to me. Why would we put up statues to things that we should be ashamed of? Um, there are so many different things that, that the South and Southern culture uh, can be proud of, and we need to champion those things. You know, I think about things such as, you know, the readjuster movement in the in the, the late 19th century and, you know, post-Reconstruction Virginia, which was a biracial coalition of, you know, of, of, of you know, poor blacks and or freed blacks and poor, poor whites, which uh, one of the biggest things that they got done was public education in Virginia. You know, people act like uh, that all there is in the South is, you know, you know, racism and, you know, and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. I, I'm technically based up near uh, near Fredericksburg. There's literally a shrine to Stonewall Jackson's arm like five miles from where I'm at. <laughs> oh my God. So, yeah. So, I, obviously, that gives us an important uh, position within the country and within DSA to lead on these issues, which is why, like I said, all the love and respect to VCYDSA and all the other YDSAs in Virginia for leading on the prison slave labor issue. And, uh, because once again, we organize in more challenging territory, so to speak, it's been important for Richmond DSA to partner up with and reach out to those other chapters in the South, which also deal with these issues because, you know, myself and I say a lot of people, other people in DSA are firm believers in, you know, regional coordination, statewide coordination, because that's how we can be really effective. And as Reverend William Barber from North Carolina likes to say, you change the South, you change the nation. That's just a basic fact basic fact and you can see the systemic racism and and like pretty much there's just it's just embedded everywhere in richmond just thinking about like food and transportation the like we built this beautiful fancy pole system but which way does it go it goes to the west end it goes towards the west end where all the people with more money live that have the the bigger nicer jobs and as the as they did that they picked up the bus stops in towards the east end and we're like people with, you know, that of the working class, just, you know, now they have a harder time getting to work and it's awful. And the same thing with food justice. Like, like I live in the South side and there's no grocery store at all. Oh, I'm a North sider. We don't have a grocery store either. Yeah. We all go to the Kroger. We all yeah, go to the same <laughs> damn Kroger. Exactly. <laughs> and they wonder why it's such a zoo. It's yes. everyone from the city has to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, and you're right. It's food justice. It's housing inequality and instability. It's policing. It's so insidious and it's everywhere. And if we don't band together and work together instead of separately, it's never, we're never going to change that. Thank you 
for hitting on those issues. Um, but let's expand in the a few minutes that we have left in about 10 minutes. Let's talk about national issues and how big names like Bernie Sanders and AOC and all these people, how they affect you locally and do they inspire you to maybe want to strive past Richmond and politics? I mean, I know that's a big open question, but we got 10 minutes. Let's make it a free for all. You know, yeah. <laughs> let's try to pack as mm-hmm. much in there as we can. But yeah, go for it. Um, you know, what major national issues mean something to you? Either you want to take this? Takes you, you're the national NPC guy. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> uh, I'd say, uh, trying to keep my comments here relatively brief, I'd say, Um, As far as Bernie and AOC, the most immediate uh, change that we see on the local level uh, because of their their influence and their popularity or whatever. Uh, For example, when AOC was first elected, we had, what, like, how many new people at our general meeting? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) More than I would normally be able to count. (laughs) Um, And that always happens. Whenever there's any sort of national news story, there's always some sort of DSA membership bump, uh, which is why, you know, as of late, I'd say post, like, 2017 DSA. Uh, a lot of people have been focused on uh, electoral campaigns because of that, and specifically Bernie Sanders, which DSA already has endorsed. Yeah, uh, they 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 give us that that capability to speak to more average folks that need that more kind of like I guess a visceral figure to actually think of when they think of socialism. And in that aspect, I'd say people like Bernie Sanders and particularly AOC now are extremely important and extremely effective and are easily I mean AOC easily is the most you know important DSA member uh, by far. And you know just to to briefly touch upon as far as like kind of like moving forward kind of things when. We started the chapter in Richmond. There were no full DSA chapters in Virginia. I'm extremely proud to say that there are now three full chapters, as well as, what, four or five YDSAs? So many, yeah. yeah. Almost one at every, like, major public school. Exactly. So as I'm, as far as I'm concerned, when you're operating in a Dylan's Rule state, or whatever the f- the technical term is, you cannot be nearly as effective as you want to be unless you're doing statewide change and statewide campaigns. And so as far as I'm concerned, three chapters, that's not enough. Not even nearly enough. Not only would I want a chapter in every corner of the state, my crazy f- up goal is a chapter in every city, a branch in every county. Because if you're present everywhere, oh yeah, if you're present everywhere, that's where you can really be most effective, especially in a place like Virginia. Um, so that, at least for me, you know, I, and I guess I, I would say for us is definitely a, a goal. Definitely. Yeah. I do. I always think like whenever the conversation turns towards the national people and the national issues, you know, like any mass movement or group, I think we're we're always inclined towards idolizing the major leaders. And there's there's nothing to say against AOC, Bernie, the major, you know, pundits of uh, democratic socialism in America. But I think it's always, and if you want to make sure that you're affecting local change, I think it's important to not support Medicare for all, all these issues because they're the talking points of these people, but you should be supporting these people because they're speaking on issues that are inherently valuable. And I think that if you take an issue issue-based approach as opposed to, oh, well, like, I'm here because I like AOC and Bernie Sanders. You know, if you're taking an issue-based approach to it, I think it's a lot easier for you to feel that local change is valuable because even though it might not be reaching the national stage, it might not be, you know, getting the attention of these major people, the best way for you to support them is probably for you to make those the things that they're trying to promote seem tangible to people that have no idea who they are, that aren't into politics. They can still benefit from these policies that they're trying to promote. So I think it's important to kind of keep the issues at the core of the discussion because as long as the issues are in the narrative then we can ensure that we have strong people in politics that can bring those goals to fruition i think they both kind of touched on you know that perfectly i mean especially with um like just having a chapter in every part of virginia as possible just so that we can just create as much of that needed change in the communities that you know that people need and are so desperately looking for exactly and 
just to, you know, touch on Catherine's earlier point, I think focusing on, you know, more issues-based campaigns is extremely important as re- as relates to the national level, only because, you know, you can get kind of wrapped up in those, you know, figureheads and... Uh, which a lot of people do. And if you do, in my opinion, that that allows for a lot less effective organizing because you're not affecting on issues that can actually reach average people. Now, granted, once again, you know, people like Bernie and AOC definitely make it in some situations easier to talk to people about socialism. You know, you have certain pivot points or whatever. But as far as effective organizing, you know, those membership bumps are cool when they happen. But who actually ends up staying? Maybe a handful? Only because a lot of them, they're coming because it's the flavor of the month thing and when you know you actually you you know you actually have to get your hands dirty and actually do the things that people like bernie and aoc and and what have you are actually talking about it gets you know it 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 becomes a lot more difficult um and and i remember uh i actually saw bernie speak in early early in his campaign in 2016 and one of the things he said was you know i need your help the day after the election that's when one of the times when it's going to be the most important. And I think that's that's definitely something that is extremely important as far as national level politics, not getting too wrapped up in those figureheads and actually staying staying aware of those actual issues that matter to the community. So that way you can actually effectively organize the community and actually make true change for the people that need it within within each said community. Before we wrap it all up, let's talk about though the key issues on a national level that are your talking points. What is it that people should be listening for, should be researching, Googling? If people don't know how to make their fingers work on the keyboard, can you please tell them what your major main national platform is for DSA? I guess we kind of briefly touched upon Medicare for all, but if we're talking national DSA campaigns and strategies that the average person is already going to be aware of and something that we campaign on, definitely Medicare for All is a big one. That was one of the national priorities set at the 2017 convention. Uh, That's one of the priorities for the chapter, if I'm not mistaken. It's not scary. Don't feel sorry for Big Pharma (laughs) and the insurance companies, please. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, unless, I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. Go. (laughs) Um, Unless you're the CEO of, you know, United Healthcare, universal healthcare is in your best interest. It really is. I think people are scared because the, they assume that they're going to have to be paying more in taxes and that that inherently makes it unappealing. But I think you have to keep in mind, even though you may be having to throw in in taxes to afford or to pay for Medicare for all, that is not even remotely close to the, to the amount of money that you have to be paying into the system when you get cancer or anything. I mean, and when you're paying in the way that we have privatized healthcare right now, the money that you're providing isn't going really to anyone besides the people who are running the show in these corporations. At least when you are talking about Medicare for all and talking about paying into the system, you're paying into your fellow community members also being able to achieve that healthcare. And so, you know, I think that the inherent value in universal healthcare is that community aspect and the fact that even though you're paying money, like you're not paying $3,000 for an MRI, which is exactly what happened to me you know, last week for some, you know, just for what? For them to realize, oh, we actually need to do a different test because the MRI was inconclusive. That, the fact, whether or not you should be able to afford the treatment that you need shouldn't be something of concern to people who are sick. And I think that is not a concern when it comes to Medicare for All. That's the function of Medicare for All is to say, just pay this amount and and we got you. You don't have to be worrying about declaring bankruptcy because you can't afford to meet the demands of the people that are running the corporate side of the healthcare industry. Yeah, and while our chapter's priority is eco-socialism and anti-dominion, because national one of the national's priorities is Medicare for all, we still have that active working group pushing to make sure that we are, you know, pushing that at a local level as well as the national level. And that's why we have um, our working group right now is working towards trying to get McEachin on board with Medicare for all and making sure that um, he supports that going forward. So that's definitely, if you want to be involved in in helping with that um, with that push, like we would love to have you and your support and helping us get that out there. And then you also mentioned eco-justice. You guys are about in the environment as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Like it's not Green Party stuff, but you care about, right, about the folks that are affected by the environmental policies of this country, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay. 
great. Just want to make sure that was thrown in there, too, in case people are listening and they don't know, hey, you know, they actually care about the emissions and the air quality and the water quality and things of that nature, too. It's very important. I mean, if you're, if you're not having a conversation about the future of the environment, you may as well not be having conversations about anything because it doesn't really matter because, I mean, we all like to kind of stick our head in the sand and say, it's not, it's not going to be that bad. It seems like it might be that bad. Like, the, the reports are getting more and more dire and it doesn't seem like catastrophizing as much anymore. It doesn't seem sensationalist. It seems to be a little scary how how clear the numbers are pointing in the direction of, like, we're screwed. And so I think that eco-justice has to be in the narrative if if we're going to have a narrative at all. And I think it's important, extremely important to notice that a lot of the environmental injustices happen to impact the same communities that we're trying to affect change in through our various other policies. So, you know, they go hand in hand. And I think that you're doing probably a disservice to all, whatever issues you care about if you're not considering the environmental side of, of socialist policies. Yeah, I mean, especially like the like the gas pipelines that are trying to go through Virginia, like the damage that that would do and the, just the fight that people are doing across the state to make, you know, to stop them from happening. And then on another level, like just the air compressor station that they're trying to put down in Union Hill, which is just absolutely would be horrible for that community. And just how all the groups that we've been working with have also been trying to work with that community as well and being there for them and supporting them in their fight. And I believe there's an, another compressor station that's trying to happen in Hopewell. It's just, they just capitalize is continuously trying to <laughs> pedal forward into our, you know, environmental destruction. And we just have to fight that much harder to make sure that they don't get what they want. <laughs> exactly. And, and I'd say impending climate disaster is the biggest reason that I am a socialist, because we cannot we simply cannot have society continue the way that it currently functions. That is a fact. If we continue digging it out of the ground, like will inevitably and eternally happen under a capitalist system, this will continue to happen and only get worse and accelerate. With socialism, you don't have that profit motive running completely out of control like it is under capitalism. And if we want to have our civilization continue, it, in my opinion, it would need to be under a socialist model because if we don't, things will continue to go out of control as they are right now. Yeah. All right. My illustrious co-host has entered the building. <laughs> hey. And we're going to let her close out the show with a heavy hitting question because, yes. you know, Fran likes to come in here and drop the shit <laughs> on you. <laughs> so true. And we did, on, we did touch on a little bit about systemic racism in the former capital of the Confederacy and mm. how it affects issues here. But you go a step further, and I'd like to hear your question, ma'am. Yeah, so, you know, I did a little research. One of the things that always plagues me about politics in general for black people and the black woman, I can speak on it, is that, you know, historically black people have been pushed into the Democratic Party. Some black people have found family in the Republican Party. I don't know why, okay. <laughs> but even consistently because white supremacy is so widespread and it has nothing really to do with politics. Black people always don't find that we're wanted or that we have a, a valid home in the Democratic Party. They like us for our votes, but they don't write policies that really help us all the time. A lot of black people have been looking for not necessarily another party, but how to make the political realm better and more accepting for us. And so since you guys are here and of course, socialism has a very interesting up and down history with <laughs> black people and white supremacy and sometimes fighting for black rights and sometimes we don't got nothing to do. We don't have anything <laughs> to do with the Negro back and forth. And so what does modern day socialism, especially DSA in this point, have you guys made a conscientious effort to attract one black voters and two, if, if you have or versus if you haven't, what does that look like? Where do black people fall as a marginalized group? Because a lot of the issues that socialism attacked are dealing with marginalized groups. In America, the largest marginalized group are African-American descendants of African slaves. So where do you guys fall on that? And what should black voters be looking for in terms of getting from you to fit in with the realm of politics in terms of policy, in terms of, you know, just everything? 
Yeah, that was a lot, but I, it's an extremely important question, mm-hmm. I would say. And I wish you were here earlier because we um, we had like a good chat about the differences between the Democratic Party and Democratic Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the big distinctions that we touched on is that as Democratic Socialists, we it's not really a priority of ours to see people as votes. We kind of organize from the ground up. So we don't see, we don't serve people's interests because we think that that will mobilize them to support us. But we we try to, like no one is going to join the Democratic Socialist Party unless they see injustices and, and want to make a difference. It's just, it's not a party that you can really get a lot of, you know, institutional clout because we are, you know, farther to the left than the Democratic Party. Um, so I think there's just, I don't, what am I trying to say? I think that there is such a large community of people that democratic socialism is trying to elevate and it would be a disservice to everything that we stand for to not acknowledge that people of color make up a huge proportion of the communities that are facing the issues the democratic socialism seeks to address. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not just about getting you guys to the polls, but we it's about reaching out to these communities and letting them know that at least we are trying to have somebody on y'all's side, that we're not we're not looking at you as a tool to further our own interests. Mm-hmm. We really just, at least from my perspective, just see horrible injustices being occurring in the community that seem to be not talked about with like the outrage that you would expect. Once you see, you cannot unsee. You cannot unsee. And it's just kind of, just, <clears throat> we're trying to explain and just kind of show to all people in all the communities that we're trying to elevate that we're here for you. We don't care about our interests. We don't care about our rise to power. And seeing, realizing the society that I think is possible, but there are just so, there's so much in the system that's keeping it at bay. So many interests, class interests especially, that are keeping it at bay. And that, I guess we're just trying to inspire hope among so many people that have just gotten a little bit jaded because they feel like they're either ignored or or seen as a strategy. And I think that we're just trying to see people as people who are just facing horrible injustices that we just want to address regardless of your race, creed, ethnicity. We just see that you're suffering, suffering in mass. Um, and I think that it's within our power to, and probably an obligation, honestly, to address that as best we can. Absolutely. And I would just like to add, you know, DSA's message is fundamentally a working class message. So what that means to me is that as far as I'm concerned, if you plan to have a working class message in Richmond and to affect working class change in Richmond, there's no way that is happening unless it is led and centered around the African-American community in Richmond, which has historically been the most, by far, most prominent underclass within Richmond and in the state of Virginia. So as far as that relates to DSA work, I think back to a point that we touched upon earlier, which is uh, allying with those other groups that are already doing the work. Rather than showing up and saying, hey, we're the mostly white DSA, we actually know what the black community wants. (laughs) That's awful strategy. And groups do that all the f***ing time. Yeah. So it's important to actually... Hashtag non, you know, all white nonprofits. Right. (laughs) Exactly. So it's important for us as the DSA to recognize that, you know, obviously this is uh, audio, but for those that can't see, I am of Puerto Rican descent. I am what most people would probably describe as brown Brown. or whatever, right? So it is not lost on me whenever I walk into a DSA meeting, whenever I go to a DSA convention and I see a room full of white people, Mm -hmm. especially in a city like Richmond, which once again, if you want to have even a remotely successful working class message, that is going to have to be led by black folks. That's Mm -hmm. just a fact. So as far as campaigns that we've been trying to be a part of to help change that, as Catherine mentioned, prison slave labor campaign is really big, fighting the the new Jim Crow, um, which is very very which is a, a big fight in virginia throughout all throughout the south it should be said and as far as internally within dsa it's about changing the culture of dsa uh richmond dsa just recently set up our socialists of color working group uh we recently had our first meeting because it's important to us to be able to provide that atmosphere for other uh members of color or anybody who's interested to actually be able to talk with other folks that are come from you know a more similar background and we've modeled it or begun to model 
model it, I should say, after the national level Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus, mm -hmm. which is one of the larger caucuses in nationwide DSA. So I would say it's not lost on any of us in this room or anybody in DSA that DSA is a painfully white organization mm -hmm. and that if we want to actually speak to the working class, not just in Richmond, not just in Virginia, but in the entire country. They got to be at the table. Absolutely. Exactly. And so it's important to ease our way into that rather than jumping in head first and trying to act like we have all the answers, especially <laughs> right. in a place like Richmond. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so before we close, y'all have a very important election coming up here in November. You have a candidate. Wants to do the honors. I mean, Nick <coughs> Silva is my boy <laughs> um, in every sense of the word. Like, just genuinely just one of the most authentic, I think, people I, I've ever met. And I think it's just, it's important to approach politics with everything but self-interest. It should not be about you. It's not about you. Um, it's about the people that you're trying to serve and their interests. And I think that Nick just inherently gets that and I think has always gotten that. And, you know, I have endless respect for him because of that. And I think that that's his just his nature and his approach to affecting change is the embodiment of what we need to see in city council, especially in the fifth. So I think that, yeah, I think just that the interests of the fifth and his intentions in politics are really aligned. Um, and I'm back at him. Anybody else have a final thought? I guess as far as Nick, you know, just real quick, uh, one of the reasons I admire him so much is like we mentioned earlier, he's such a natural, organic leader, which I think is so important for being effective in the community and in organizing. Like I said, VCYSA, there were multiple times that people tried to start it up. And when it was falling apart, it was Nick that came in and led and turned it into the to what it is today, which is on, on much firmer standing than it was previously. And that uh, just ties into a city council run. You know, obviously Nick can, you know, speak for himself and has on, on many occasions. But one of the things that uh, helped radicalize Nick was being in Charlottesville on August 12th, when a lot of other DSA members were there as well. And that was one of the things that kind of like lit off that spark inside him to try and fight for change for people. And that's why I think people like Nick are so important. Those actual organic leaders, you know, Nick wasn't in a classroom somewhere reading Karl Marx and saying, you know what, I'm going to go and fight for the proletariat. You know, that's not what happened. <laughs> Nick was actually in the streets seeing go down and saying, no, we need to change that. And I think that's important. So Nick's really cool. Vote for him. Yeah. Yeah. Our chapter like really, really believes in him like through and through. We're just so excited and we know he's going to win. Like he is someone who is dedicated and driven. He cares about the community that he's running for. I mentioned earlier with the surveys, like as he's canvassing, he is asking people what their community needs are. And he is trying, like he tries to find an answer for them. And that alone, like like just shows how driven he is for people and not for corporations or anything else. Like it's just, it's just so great to see. And our chapter had unanimously endorsed him. Everyone is just so thrilled that he's running. Like we just, he's just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so on November 5th, everybody get out and vote, right? Yes. Woo. Yes. Yeah. Get out and vote. <laughs> However, which way you're doing it, just do it. Yes. Just do it. Um, how can folks get in touch with y'all? Social media, email? Yeah. We are on the Instagram and the Facebook and the Twitters. And the Twitters. And the Twitters. Gotta be on the Twitters. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a website site. It is dsarichmond.org. So you can hit us up on any or all of those channels and we will have someone who can get with you. Much to that same effect, I would say probably the fastest way to reach us is Twitter DMs. Um, we check those religiously because all of us are always on Twitter. Um, <laughs> can relate. Yes. <laughs> if you have like, you know, formal inquiry, uh, definitely email us. Also respond to that very fast. It's kind of weird. It's vcuyds at gmail.com. No A, not sure why, um, but just keep that in mind because otherwise you'll get 
return email. Um, yeah, Twitter DMs are the best if you have a quick question. If you're interested in reaching out, partnering with us, um, getting involved, I probably shoot us an email just so we have more room to speak. Thank you all so much for coming and sharing your stories and sharing your political adventures. Thank you for here. having us. Um, Absolutely, yes. And uh, we hope to see you again. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Until next time. Until next it. time, y'all. Thank you. Right. We had a really great episode today. And uh, once again, thank you to the YD DSA at VCU. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for being here representing them. And thank you to Austin and Yame for representing the Richmond chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Hit us up on social media. You can follow us and continue this conversation at RVA Dirt across all platforms. And it wouldn't be right if we didn't close with, you know what's coming. Flint still has dirty water. Now Jersey does too. Richmond Public Schools is fully funded this year, but we need to start working on next year because the budget's heavy. And as always, Richmond is still racist, but we're working on it. See you next week.